0: Welcome to Alps, a leadership podcast series. Today, I have the immense honor to recognize and pay tribute to the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. When asked to define her legacy, the notorious RBG said, to make life a little better for people less fortunate than you. That's what I think a meaningful life is. One lives not for oneself, but for one's community. R.B.G. led a life in service of others and in pursuit of equity. In many ways, R.B.G. was one of the leaders who has changed American law forever. As an associate justice on the Supreme Court, Ginsburg wrote opinions that championed both gender and racial equality, most notably in the United States versus Virginia, the culmination of her campaign for equal treatment in the law where her re- majority opinion held unconstitutional that Virginia Military Institute's practice of excluding qualified women from admission merely because of sex. Her oral dissent in Ledbetter versus Goodyear, which rejected a pay discrimination case on a technicality, pushed Congress to enact and President Barack Obama to sign equal pay legislation in 2009. Additionally, RBG defended women's reproductive freedom in several cases and supported gay marriage. Her legacy, however, goes far beyond what she achieved in court. Ginsburg also should be remembered for her resiliency. Personal setbacks animated her quest for social justice. She experienced profound challenges. The loss of her mother the day before she graduated high school, her husband's struggle with cancer while they both were in law school, fueled her fierce determination to accomplish her dreams and achieve justice for others. I wasn't going to just sit around in the corner and cry, she once said. RBG stood in the face of adversity, often being the only woman in the room. As we honor and celebrate Latinx Heritage Month, it is without a doubt that RBG's dedicated work in advocacy for women's rights and immigration policy has impacted generations of Latinx families since being appointed in 1993. May her passing empower us to lead with grace and intentionality in all that we do. Rest in power, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. by my friend and colleague, David Engtel. David taught Spanish at Buckley High School located on the south side of Hartford from 2016 to 2018. After completing his core member experience, David transitioned to the RT where he has been working over the past two years with the PRT. David's leadership inside and outside the classroom has had a personal effect on me and I'm so excited to have this space with you today, David. David, welcome. Can you begin by telling us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from and what brings you here today?
1: Thank you so much for that marvelous introduction. Um, So, you know, like you said, my name is David Engtel. I'm a native of Connecticut, of Northwestern Connecticut, and I also had the pleasure of joining the Corps in Connecticut and having an impact uh, a little bit close to home. Um, I am somebody who's kind of gone through a few different geographic changes throughout my life so like i said i grew up in northwestern connecticut and it felt like a very kind of sheltered upbringing and something that i always wanted to like escape and i always idolized new york city as being the big city and i had a background in theater too so i was super super excited the day that i graduated to move to new york Um, i spent about five years there and then i joined the peace corps which brought me to cameroon in west africa for a couple years um, and I made my transition from the Peace Corps right into uh, the classroom with Teach for America. Um, I'm really excited to, to be here today and share a little bit about my experience, um, what kind of has brought me to this work, what keeps me in it, and what kind of keeps me energy.
0: Yeah, I think that, you know, one of the things that I immediately loved about you when I met you, David, was that you just have this natural energy about you. You are you're a nice person personally, but then you're also just like very real. Um, and I think that's what is, is something that I've always looked for in friends and colleagues is that they're real with me, they're authentic, and they can speak their mind when they need to. And that's definitely something that we did in Connecticut while we were there for those two weeks together. Um, but, you know, thinking about where we are right now, and even your trajectory, being in the Peace Corps, doing Teach for America, and that's, that's not common, right? Like, there are folks who do do that, but that's not, I would say, the trajectory of most folks in TFA or even in the Peace Corps. I'm considering what's going on right now in terms of COVID. I'm interested to like hear more about what your thoughts are. You know, there are more than one billion children that are at risk right now of falling behind due to school closures aimed at containing the spread of COVID, which is great. We hope that we can contain that spread, um, but to keep our world's children learning, um, countries have been implementing remote education programs, and we've seen that in Connecticut. I've been talking to you know M. D. Fox, where I taught at, and they're doing that in many ways. But yet there's so many of our world's children that are particularly that particularly in low-income communities who don't have access to the things that they need, like internet access, uh, you know, personal computers, TVs, or even radios at home, which amplify the effects of existing learning inequities within our communities. So students that are lacking access to those technologies needed for home-based learning are limited to the means to continue their education, either on their own or by support from a teacher or a friend or even their parent. And as a result, many of them face risk of never returning to school or undoing the years of progress made in education around the world. And so there's a lot going on right now in COVID-19. I can't imagine stepping into the classroom right now. Could you tell us, David, what brought you and keeps you in equity work?
1: Yeah, that's a great question and a a really great point to the kind of impact that COVID's having globally. Um, So I guess to speak a little bit to my own journey, I, I majored in political science and romance languages in undergrad and... I really saw myself kind of transitioning into a role in uh, international affairs, international development. I, I really wanted to work for the State Department eventually and um, you know potentially be an ambassador abroad. And so I thought that Peace Corps would be a really great point of entry into all of that, to start to build a little bit of experience and perspective. But it ended up having kind of the opposite effect. Um, you know, for me, I saw that all of these organizations, all these NGOs in Cameroon that were run by Uh, you know international entities uh, were really kind of corrupt both on the abroad side but as well as on the Cameroonian side. You know I worked with an organization that um, was pretty much sponsored by UNICEF and they would get approximately like $15,000 in grants to complete a few different programs that they would you know try to execute on and the person who ran the NGO would pocket probably 90% of that and spend the other 10% on actually executing the, the projects. And he would send these like fabricated receipts back to, the, to UNICEF or to whatever grant funding organization. And it, it just seems like people in power kind of stay in power and they really work to um, hold on to that. And I noticed that the one real opportunity to escape cyclical poverty which is like rampant in Cameroon. Pretty much everyone relies on substance farming at home to you know stay fed. Um, the, the one thing that people have in common when they're able to escape that is education and you have to pay to go to school in Cameroon as you do in many many countries around the world um, and so when you're young when you're going to the first couple of years of school it's really only the equivalent of a few dollars so it's it's very affordable but by the time you get to say to high school um, especially towards like the upper years your parents might have to pay you know 20 30 40 50 u.s dollars um, which is actually a significant portion of a family's income and it would always end up being that families wouldn't be able to send all of their kids to school if they didn't have the financial resources and the first ones who got the cup were girls um, and they would you know learn maybe how to sew when they would work. Maybe they would uh, go to market and try to sell vegetables or fruit or something from home. Um, and the next ones to get the cut were the kids who just weren't doing great in school. So if a family was lucky, they would have one student who was able to go all the way through Lycee to Terminal and graduate and get like the equivalent of their high school diploma. Um, Even if that student didn't go to college, they just had so many opportunities open to them, especially working in like office jobs or quote unquote white collar jobs, um, things that other people just don't have access to without any qualifications. And that person would be expected to pay that forward to their family, to um, support their parents, to maybe take one of their parents, um, you know, youngest children under their wing and, you know, house them and feed them and send them to school and take care of them and functionally adopt them. And... It just struck me as so incredibly unjust and so unfair that a family only had maybe one shot to get a child through school who had any earning capability, um, and it it made me really kind of reflect on what education looks like from a global perspective and especially a little bit closer to home. You know, does that disparity exist exactly the same in the United States? No. You know, you are required to go to school by law. Um, or be enrolled in school anyways, you know, school is theoretically free. But at the same time, so many aspects of that disparity does really transition to what we see in the U.S. You know, you go district to district, like looking at Hartford, where we both have a lot of context, as well as your other guests. um, Hartford is a fairly poor city, um, but it doesn't necessarily make sense because Hartford is also the capital of insurance in in this country. You know, there are so many really, really high income jobs in the city of Hartford. The problem is that schools are funded by local taxes and Hartford being the capital of Connecticut has a lot of buildings that are tax exempt because they're government buildings um also because there are so many of these high income jobs in hartford the people who hold those jobs live in suburbs and so their taxes their local taxes do not go to hartford schools they go to the suburban schools which are predominantly made up of um you know wealthier white folks as opposed to hartford which is a much more diverse city and has uh, much less affluence and so Thinking of that disparity, it's really what encouraged me to step into the classroom. I I always tell people that I didn't join Teach for America because I've always wanted to be a teacher and I wanted to have an impact in the classroom. I joined Teach for America because I recognized how incredibly pivotal education can be in determining a child's trajectory and that the best and only real way to a career in that field um, of pursuing equity within the realm of education is by spending at least a couple years in the classroom and building out my perspective and authenticity from that angle so that i could use that to you know influence my work which is really our long-term theory of change as an organization i mean it's something that's really kind of personally propelled me to not just step into this work but to stay into this work because i've been exposed to all these different ways that people are having an impact whether that's in the classroom or leading a um, you know nonprofit organization or so many other avenues and and I, I think that that kind of energy is really what keeps me in this work every day.
0: Yeah I mean I, I resonate with a lot what you shared there David. I think our long-term theory of change within Teach for America was kind of like my own personal theory of change growing up in in like college as I was a part of different student organizations and I thought of like what do I want my legacy to be on this earth I I resonated a lot with what Teach for America um, shared within their own theory of change and I one, one other thing that I'm also just like thinking about in terms of like Hartford is like, you know, you naming like the reason why these inequities are here and like we have West Hartford, which is just down the street from Hartford and you can see like the, the, the difference of both of those towns, the education that's there, meaning um, the folks who live there and, you know, thinking about other places like here in Orlando. Where we used to have a region of, that's now an alumni region, and we have Disney there, and we have Universal there. So why are these inequities here if we have all these these big corporations or big businesses here? Even in North Carolina, where I did some recruitment work last year, you know, there's big banking there, Bank of America is there, Wells Fargo, and all these places. But yet, you know, the, we see the disparities, and you know, that I, I I think over time what I've realized is is that. Because of its systemic nature, sometimes we think we're pinpointing the actual problem, but yet the problem is, you know, four or five steps behind or away from us. And so, like figuring that out requires leaders like you and me and other folks to say, like, you know, where is this um, within the problem, and how can I best be of service to it? Um, you know, David, I, I want to follow up with something that you said earlier about your time um, in the Peace Corps and just hearing what you were sharing about, you know, the big decision that families had to make. Um, mm-hmm feel like it, it, it resonates a little bit with like the decision that families have to make right now and whether or not they have to send their kids to school when COVID's happening. So I would love to hear, like, what was the advice that you shared with families or students when those realities were true or perhaps they were going to leave school? You know, what kind of life skills or what kind of other things were implemented so that these students who perhaps could not finish their education would still have something to lean on? You mentioned sewing so and some other things, but I was wondering what else.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was also a big part of my role as a Peace Corps volunteer, and specifically within my sector of youth development. Um, A lot of our work ends up on how do we build uh, soft skills like leadership development in in youth, but also how do we create opportunities through like income generating um, activities. There there are a lot of different ways to make money uh, in the world, in Cameroon, and um, it was a kind of I don't want to. I don't want to put like the stance on it that it's like a sad reality, but it's a very different reality than in the United States, where if you don't have like a full secondary education, it's not a big deal in Cameroon because the vast majority of people do not, and so there are so many pathways to making money and sustaining yourself um, that are created because of that. You know, there's a huge labor market, um, but it's it's weird when you're you know, sitting down to get a a coffee and you have a like six-year-old who's coming up to you to try to sell you peanuts or or tissues. Um, It's that really uncomfortable reality that you know that this child doesn't go to school and they should be going to school. Um, But at the same time, you know that they're providing something for their family and potentially they're having an impact on, you know, themselves not starving or having access to maybe medicine, like should anything awry happen. when I think about the impact that COVID is having from a global perspective, you know, we really look at it from this lens of in the U.S., like, oh, teachers have to teach remotely and kids are on Zoom. That's not an option in Cameroon. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Absolutely nowhere. Even in the wealthiest schools, the wealthiest communities, that's that's not an option. Um, you know, I've seen so many children die from dehydration. I've seen. Um, things that are like unfathomably not lethal in the United States, just having huge consequences on children's lives abroad. And when I think about what what do you do with somebody who has to withdraw from school, somebody who needs to find some alternative means you have to really meet them where they are like it's i learned very quickly that you can't just say well this is how we do it in america and that's the right way actually um because that's very wrong you know a lot of things that we do are not the right way contextually in other communities and other societies um so you need to to meet people where they're at um you know some people might be completely fine working in the market 10 hours a day six days a week and um you know, they they need to find some sort of like passion project to kind of balance out their lives. Um, some girls maybe are getting married like really early, and and that has a detriment to their own development. Maybe they get pregnant at a very young age um, and they have to raise a child Uh, a lot of children take on like family responsibilities from a very early age too you know you see like five-year-olds walking around by themselves like toting a two-year-old or a little toddler on their shoulders so often um, which is actually really cute a lot cuter than I'm making it sound Um, but it's 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 this constant tension of How do I balance like what I know to be true in my own culture, my own background in the U.S.? You know, if a child drops out of school in the U.S., they need to figure something out. Mm -hmm. Just like they do in Cameroon, those pathways just can look very different and the opportunities and expectations also
0: is really unique David because you're able to I think I think a couple ways because one you're able to co- directly compare even your own upbringing the experiences you've had and then those same experiences that you had in the classroom with your students um, and I think it's really powerful and I imagine when you speak with prospects as well like it's really powerful to hear your story and the things that you've been able to achieve and also that you, you taught a language um, in the core which isn't very common as well um, not many folks do that and so I think that you know, you, you've you been able to reach folks because of those experiences, because you've, you've traveled and you've been able to, you know, work with people who who don't have the trajectory that maybe you and I would have. And, you know, we talk so much about perspective and like how do you gain that. And in our teaser for this podcast, I should mention that like for me, it's been when I go to different places. I've lived in so many places across the world that I realized that, you know, my best skill is actually adapting and, and, and being able to see the perspective and then bring that to the level. Um, I know that that's the same for you. So in terms of, you know, what you're, what you're hoping to do next, um, David, what are your priorities moving forward as a leader and as a professional?
1: Yeah, what a, what a great question. That's always very top of mind. I, I think that especially, with the events happening this summer and the real shift in like social awareness of the policing and brutality on Black bodies and just the overall kind of um, marginalization of so many people in this country, I'm I'm really invested in finding ways to do my work in a way that is truly authentic. Um, you know, we had conversations on the PRT this summer about is you know being anti-racist is um being like a change maker is that my job or is that who i am and that's something that's really kind of stuck with me a lot over the last couple months um you know my role is not just to bring anti-racist folks into an anti-racist organization that's something that i want to live into in my life every day um i i want to be a more um, bold leader. I want to be somebody who's more involved, somebody who, you know, engages in activism in a really authentic way. And it's something that I've I've only had, like, small experiences with. You know, I've gone to, like, several protests over the summer, um, but always kind of have thought, you know, I would love to lead an event. I would love to, um, you know, expand my impact, just like in the way that like stepping out of the classroom and into the role as a recruiter is sort of expanding the way that I'm having an impact on educational inequity by the people that I bring into this organization. That's something that I really think about in terms of my own development. Like what are my next steps, not just in my career, but in my actual life to continue expanding impact. Um, so when I when I think of priorities, I think really being authentic to that and finding ways to, um, truly engage with communities in, in like a, a meaningful way and challenge my own perspective, my own lens that I have on this world, which I know is obviously informed as growing up in a very white community, a very not racially or economically diverse community. Um, but then having experiences that that really kind of open my eyes to, to all of these different realities around the world um, to be able to continue to do that and to, to have an impact and this is kind of where I, I think back to like my uh initial development goals you know I, I wanted to do development work because I wanted to um you know create more equity on like a global lens but I, I think I've really honed in on not wanting to have that impact globally or internationally right now but really focusing on the communities that are near and dear to my heart, which um, you know, at this point is Connecticut and New York.
0: Yeah, uh, I feel that too. You know, I, I've always wanted to you know, have a global impact in some way, but in, in so many ways, if we are, are able to focus on the micro, the macro will come right. And what I, what, I, what I told students about when I taught, and even when you know, talking to my basketball team and swim team that I'm coaching right now. I talked to them about leadership and how leadership really is a trickle effect. And so if each of us gives a little bit, you know, a little bit into the bowl of that water. We'll trickle in to have the bowl full um, if all of us do that. And there's something that you said earlier, David, that has me thinking a lot. And it's kind of hit home for me. You said, is it my
1: job or is it who I am? Yeah. Doesn't that mess with your brain a little? It's strong. It's just... It's it's the same thing we talk about when we talk about like people who grow up in in kind of like sheltered perspectives. They never realize that there are all of these issues and lack of access and opportunities that are having a huge 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 direct impact on people's lives every day. Because it's so easy to just close your eyes and live in your own world. Um, it's it's so easy. You know, I went to a school. It was a small public school and. Northwestern Connecticut, there were 80-something kids in my graduating class, and there were two people of color in my whole school, both of whom were adopted. That was my exposure to diversity uh, growing up, you know, up until I was 15, and then I went to boarding school, which for some reason was much more racially diverse, but economically, the literally the most like affluent group of people i've ever been around Um, but then like going to new york city to a cuny which is incredibly diverse and people from all walks of life like a a non-traditional campus really built out my perspective that is exactly the same kind of mindset that I, i look at that thought with because it's so easy to say like yeah, I'm a I'm an equity fighter. Like I clock in every morning, and this is what I do. I talk to people mm-hmm. about racism and how like my children were, you know, so oppressed and had all the odds stacked against them. But you know, that is such a an easy way out. It's so easy to leverage other people's stories and and the work that you're trying to recruit people for. I I think the focus for me has been more how do I build out my, my own perspective through my lens and through the experiences of communities and communities and not just kind of, you know, do that with a less authentic approach.
0: Yeah. And I think when you, know, you mentioned you know, leveraging, and I think when we leverage stories, we also have to empower those stories. Right. Mm-hmm. So we can't just use those stories to our own benefit, but we have to find a way to empower them. Um, so those stories can be true for multiple people, not just one or two in our communities. And I yeah. think, you know, something that you're mentioning here and back to what you mentioned of like, is it my job or is it who I am? It's a lot about like our DEI work. When we think about like, how do we access DEI? This summer when I was at VSTT, we talked about DEI being the work within the self to do the work within the group, to do the work within the system. And I think we often just so, so many times forget about the self and we don't ask ourselves the question of how the work really does affect us and what is our stance on it like inside of a classroom environment inside of a you know recruitment environment inside of a community environment we don't ask ourselves those questions um and I just deeply appreciate you kind of bringing that I'm gonna gonna sit with that for a couple days I feel like It's, it's deep um and I think you know transitioning us into talking a little bit about DEI I know you're leading an affinity space this year David can you talk to us a little bit more about what were your reasons for doing that um and what you hope to be true for that affinity space this year
1: yeah, absolutely. So I, I kind of stepped into. I asked if I could join the leadership team um, last year for the LGBTQ plus affinity space because I, I really wanted to find a way to expand and challenge my own leadership. Um, and at the same time, I feel like my identity as a gay man is very relevant to everything that I do. You know, it's it's an invisible identity, I guess, but it's also something that. Um, because of my own experiences my own upbringing it's, it's just something that's always very top of mind for me um, and I, I really wanted a, a social space where people would be free to engage with that piece of their identity and whether it's their sexuality or their gender identity um, and be able to also really dig into how that informs and influences our work every day um, not just for us as recruiters but also when we're talking to prospects who um, know maybe are going to be teaching in a community that is not as uh, liberal and progressive towards queer rights or when we're talking with prospects who um, you know are nervous about having um, students who who identify as queer uh, and not knowing what resources what support to to give them or what they'll have access to Um, I I really going into this year want to be very intentional about creating those two different spaces one where there's actual real genuine connections that people are forming where we're able to create a sense of community um and and really push that beyond like the surface level Um, but also one where we're creating resources where we're learning from other people where we're able to share information with the rest of the rt about what these resources are and you know we see that our um LGBTQ plus uh, incoming core members who attend institute always score really poorly on their satisfaction, on their NPI, uh, and it, we really need to do some digging into why that is in the first place. And I think that as recruiters, you know, we're gatekeepers for this organization, um, and we have an expectation and a, a need to actually explore what those supports look like and why this isn't functioning properly and what we could do to, to increase folks' sense of comfort and security, which is incredibly important, not just as they you know, attend summer training, but also when they're in their classrooms and when they're in their regions, which for a lot of people can be states or cities that they've never been to or lived in prior.
0: I think something I want to highlight here is, you know, this could be the first time that an individual has support like this, Um, you know, leaving their university or, you know, leaving their work environment and joining Teach for America and having, you know, a space where they can be in community with people like them talk about their worries, their their happinesses, you know, what they want to do in life. And I think that we often don't realize how powerful these spaces really are, especially if we've been in them for many years. You know, you and I, for about four years, have had these spaces available to us. And so it's, you know, second nature for us to know that they exist and they are necessary. Um, But that's not always the case for our core members. And even what I saw at VSTT is, you know, they questioned why they needed to be in more spaces. Um, and you know even I have questioned that over time so I think like in our DEI development it's so important for us to see you know where are the pushes we need to have and, and you leading the affinity space this year David I, I know it takes a lot, a lot of leadership especially in the times that we're in Um, you know, I I think we appreciate that from you and I think that, you know, as we continue to move as a staff of creating more transparency, honesty and authenticity in the work that we do, I'm so excited to see our affinity groups work together and co-collaborate spaces so that the entire team, the entire team and the entire art team general may be more intersectional in a way that is, um, not only just approachable for us as a staff, but also just for us to know that you know it matters, and the things that we do here matters, um, because if we are fighting for kids and equity, the work that we do here as professionals is directly impacting that. Yeah, I think we absolutely. also lose sight of that on, on the RT that you know the work that we do is impacting kids every day, um, and that keeps me grounded. You know, especially when there's a lot going on for
1: sure. Yeah, and it's been a really great um, experience so far. You know. Two weeks, maybe three weeks. We've had two calls with Affinity Space leaders, and it's so great being able to like feed off the energy and learn from other people. Like I reached out to somebody in um, the Latinx uh, Affinity Group because like I I've heard nothing but amazing things from everybody who's participated in that. Just to kind of get some information and perspective on, you know, what what is it that creates this fantastic community? And I'm co-leading the space with Andrew Sun this year, and we've been able to sit down and have some like really great conversations about what we wanna see evolve in the space and how we want people to feel. And it's just really great to be able to step into the design, like the SVD part of this year, <laughs> um, in terms of many spaces having so much energy and having so many people that we can work with and learn from and collaborate with. And I, I think it's gonna be really exciting for, for all of us
0: right and ultimately we're all in this together and i think if we can create those systems where we can collaborate in a way that that is functional that folks can continue to be able to collaborate over time because it's not just doing it once but having that longevity in that process Mm -hmm. Um, and you know i think that also when we think about um, the Latinx space, shout out to those affinity leaders, Justin and Devia. Um, they they are doing you know things that are you know particular to their space, but can be recreated across so many spaces. And we often are just so much siloed because we want to do things one way, or you know it's our ideas. And and really, we can save time and resources if we, if we work in collaboration in that way. So I'm excited that you're going to be doing that this year, David. And that we have this collaboration space moving forward. And. Our time is almost done, but before we close together today, David, I want to take a second to reflect with you on something that the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg said. And she said, fight for the things that you care about, but do it in a way that will lead others to join. What are your thoughts on that?
1: I have so many thoughts about this and not enough thoughts as well. Um, This is something that I think about so often in, in the activism lens, world perspective, what have you, is it better to be peaceful and palatable and progress in slow increments, or is it better to fight and set things on fire and push towards change that's actually needed in a more immediate sense? And My understanding of that is also informed by my perspective. Just like we were talking about before, like things can change for the better and it won't have much of an impact on me personally being a white cisgendered man living comfortably. Things could change for the worse and it also honestly would not impact me. And it takes so much to step outside of yourself and your perspective to realize that my opinion maybe doesn't matter much here, because we're doing this work for people whose lives are on the line. Um, you know, we know that in Connecticut, specifically, Black women have uh, much worse access to quality health care, have much higher mortality rates when giving birth. Black children don't have as long life expectancy or much more likely to die during infancy than white children. Um, and that's just, you know, health care in Connecticut. There are so many things that are on the line every day. Education, access to jobs, healthcare, um, representation, politics, policy, all of these different things. And I, I have to say that personally, I don't, I, I do believe that it's important to fight for things that you care about in a way that will inspire others to join you. You know, that is leadership. But at the same time, I'm also nervous that that does not put the urgency in a lot of the fights that are needed, that's required to actually achieve progress. Um, You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg is an incredible human, has done so many incredible things during her life, her 87 years in this world, and during her time in the Supreme Court. Her benchmark, thing is feminism you know she she has slammed through the glass ceiling she has done so many things for women but you have to also step back and realize was her feminism intersectional and in a lot of instances it hasn't been and I wonder had she she, I'm, I'm not using her necessarily specifically but would one doing this work um who was less worried about, um, you know, getting other people to join them and more concerned with achieving the the outcomes that are needed to create a more fair, just, equitable world, Would would that change the way that people do their work? You know, that, that urgency is needed. And it's it's the same urgency that we see in our work. It's not enough just to be a good teacher in a classroom and, you know, to, to help kids learn. That's not going to bridge all the gaps that our kids are experiencing, not even in, in education or in the classroom. You need to go above and beyond. And so while I do think that it's incredibly important to, um, you know, be a, a leader who is really inspiring and, and your words have they're accessible to people. I, I also think that it's really important to know what your mission is and to work towards that. And if that means that some people might have a hard time um, coping with their sexism, with their racism, with their understanding of the inequities in this world, so be it. And and that's my own perspective. And, and I truly think that there's space for both of these. Um, but I... I think it's it's such a tension that is inherent in this work, but in, in all activism, truly.
0: Yeah, for sure. And I think that, I think you highlighted something really important here, that one, there's still more work to do. You know, RBG was able to achieve a lot in her lifetime. She did amazing things. And there's still so much work to be done, um, to fight for different communities, different intersectionalities that maybe we haven't even considered yet. All right? And I think that's that's the beauty in the work that we do every day, David. That's what inspires me is, is to be able to fight the inequities that maybe we don't exist, no exist yet. Mm-hmm. And, you know, mm-hmm. thinking about that quote, for me, it's, you know, I would love people to join me in the fight um, for equity and making sure that you know, this world is just in so many ways. Mm-hmm. At the same time, I know that it's important for us to stay grounded and not be um, feasible to allowing people to change that vision right so staying grounded in that and then having the authenticity and organizational leadership to make it a reality and often those are some of the things that are missing in order for equity to be achieved um, so I'm, I'm excited to leave this work with you David and so blessed to know you as a friend as a colleague as someone who's changed my life since 2016 continues to do so my friend um, and I'm just gonna leave it in your words so is this work isn't my job or is it who I am? As I reflect with my conversation with David, I am humbled by his achievements and energized for what is to come. COVID 19 has required us to alter our way of living and has surfaced more inequities throughout our society. In many ways, the world has unveiled the need for us to fuel the fight for equity through more imaginative means. This summer, we bared witness to massive global protests with attendance from individuals spanning from our youngest leaders in diapers to senior citizens who previously marched during the civil rights movement. If there's one thing that is true, it is that our voices are stronger and louder together. As teachers, we tell our students that they're capable of achieving anything that they set their mind to. Don't we? Advice that stems from tearing down boundaries to create limitless opportunities for our students to see themselves thrive in today's world. For those of us who can, November 3rd, 2020 is the day where we can exercise our leadership in creating limitless opportunities for future generations. I believe it is our responsibility to ensure that we're registered to vote and have a game plan of how to navigate the voting process for this upcoming election. As someone who grew up in Puerto Rico, a colonized U.S. territory, I have seen the effects on the island from being unable to vote for the U.S. presidency. So when you vote, you speak for people who have never been given the chance, a privilege we should not mishandle. October 6, 2020 is the last day to register to vote. Don't know if you're registered to vote? It's okay. Visit www.nass.org forward slash can I vote. That is www.nass.org forward slash canivote. Here, you will find the resources and pertinent information you will need to help you and your loved ones successfully vote in the 2020 election. Don't wait. Register now and exercise your right.